According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians once again tonight. Returning back to Philippians chapter 2. We are learning how to develop an attitude. We're also studying a passage of scripture that tells us to have the attitude which was in Christ Jesus. And that's uh, the real application we want to make here tonight. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And so that's the pattern that's set for us. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's where we are, what we're looking at. We've uh, barely scratched the first part of that in verses 3 and 4, and so I want to get back to that again here tonight. Before we do, though, let's make sure we're in fellowship. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, calling upon you tonight to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us, hinder those that would want to come in here and cause trouble. And Father, uh, just be faithful. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We will start with some questions tonight. If we have some questions, there is a microphone that's ready to go. Uh, there was one email question that came in. I'll start with that. And uh, everything seems dim tonight. Does everything seem dim? That seems normal. Curious to me why the laptop is going dim. Okay. It is plugged in and it is fully charged, so I don't know. Um, how long is a Sabbath day journey? Uh, this is from Bill Kelly. He says, while reading the book of Acts, this morning I came across two things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Acts one twelve. how long is a Sabbath day's journey? As it says, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And so... Uh, short answer, um, a thousand cubits, I guess you could say. Uh, Sabbath day's journey, you can pull it up in your Logos, you can right-click it, you can get the information that's there. Anyone with Logos can do this. Uh, as you look in your right-hand menu, you've got your term, you've got your uh, lemma, You've got your root, you've got some grammatical information, then you scroll on down and you've got some other information that's there, including Sabbath day's journey. And you find out, that, oh, look at that, 
Sabbath day's journey, that's a thing. And uh, then you're able to click on that and then find other resources that are available. For example, uh, all these uh, lexicons or all these uh, encyclopedias on the left all have articles on Sabbath day's journey. You can also click on the fact book at the top and it'll open up the fact book for you and it will list there all the uh, resources you have in your library that have articles on Sabbath day journey. And so at the very top, It'll give you some of the thing, uh, information from the weights and measures calculator. The distance a Jew could travel on the Sabbath, no more than 2,000 cubits, and uh, some other rough equivalents on that. There are some, of course, fine print that goes with that as well, you know. Um, essentially because it's a Sabbath requirement that you don't travel on the Sabbath, you don't work on the Sabbath, you don't violate the Sabbath. And so, oh, it just got brighter. How about that? Okay. And um, so there are different uh, opinions and rulings and judgments that uh, were offered by various rabbis. The um, This is from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. The expression is used only once in Scripture, Acts one twelve where it is said that the ascension from the Mount of Olives took place a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. Uh, the distance a Jew might travel on the Sabbath without breaking the law. Uh, 2,000 cubits distance or 3,000 feet was arrived at on the basis of Joshua 3.4, uh, where it is said that the ark traveled 2,000 cubits ahead of the Israelite camp. Since uh, Jews were allowed to go to the tabernacle on the Sabbath, this distance became fixed as a Sabbath day's journey. And so they just found a number in the law that seemed to apply, and they went with that. Um, today in the chapel of the Ascension of the Mount of Olives, one may see a footprint on the top of the mount that some of the pious believe is the footprint of Jesus made when he ascended. Uh, in reality, it probably was a mark to indicate the extent of a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. may also be the spot from which Jesus ascended. They had some interesting ways to get around it, though, some uh, some fine print. I'll read one more article. Um, this is from the uh, ISBE. And again, it cites the 2,000 cubit uh, figure from Joshua 3.4. Um, travel was defined as a work. It was a violation of the Sabbath if you traveled, according to Exodus 16, verses 27 through 30. And specifically... As it says there, um, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the Sabbath day. And let me tell you, that's an expression that has generated a lot of, you know, well, you know, who's my neighbor kind of discussion? Who, what's my place kind of discussion? Is my place the, the residence uh, in Jollyville, or is my place Jollyville? Is my place Austin? You know, if I, as long as I'm in Austin, I'm in my place, right? This is my town. And so they kind of created some creative measurements for 2,000 cubits. Uh, as long as you have the whole boundaries of Jerusalem to start with, then you can go 2,000 cubits either direction and, uh, and so forth. They also had a, a nifty theory um, that they could double it. Um, yeah, they had some other theories too. 
In any case, the scribes invented ways to increase the Sabbath day's journey up to a distance of 4,000 cubits. One could deposit food at the 2,000 cubit limit before the Sabbath began. So you see, if you just get out to that point before the you know, sun goes down and Sabbath officially starts, then what happens is you, you bury some food there and then you can declare before God and the world and everybody say, this is now my home. I've, I've planted food here. And then, um, then you could travel another 2,000 cubits beyond that. So uh, if you deposited food at a 2,000 cubit limit before the Sabbath began and declare that spot a temporary home, um, or you could select a tree or a wall and, and declare that your home, then you could travel an additional 2,000 cubits as soon as the Sabbath begins and uh, kind of double your thing there. You can also declare the whole town in which you dwelt was your domicile, and so uh, you can go anywhere inside the town or, or beyond. Anyway, they had some other things they did, and it's just it's a curious thing to me how they uh, handled the Scripture that way. Uh, then he had a second question, too, about the selection of Matthias um, when choosing another one to replace Judas. Uh, in addition to the eleven, Peter said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of men. Knowing that the lot fell to Matthias, can we infer that Barsabbas might not have had pure motives for the task at hand? I wouldn't infer that at all. I think both candidates were legitimate, um, but God selected uh, Matthias rather than Barsabbas. So I wouldn't impugn anything against uh, Barsabbas on the basis of that. So anyway, that's that's uh, two questions that came in by email. So uh, I also uh, refreshed our whole Q&A file. So uh, we got a fresh start on that. All right, what else do we have tonight? Let's go to the back row there and then we'll come over here. So Chuck, you got our next question? I do. Does the Bible address either specifically or kind of by inference how our mind is changed other than losing the Olson nature when we die and get our resurrection body? In other words, do we suddenly know all the Bible doctrine we haven't learned yet? <laughs> or do we learn that later on? Or, you know, the stuff that's wrong, it's that we forget it forever? Or There's really no clear indication anywhere in the Bible about that. Um, there, because there's very few glimpses anyway of, of people that die and go to heaven. So you have Lazarus who died and went to Abraham's bosom, and he was being comforted. Um, I, I think a good definition of being comforted is having all my bad doctrine taken away and then you know, replaced with a better understanding. But that's, that really reads a lot into what the text doesn't actually say. And so um, I, do, I do know it says that, when we, uh, that we will see him as he is, we will be like him. And so um, that's, that's encouraging. Um, but as far as uh, what it takes... Any time for our thinking to be renewed, it takes the Word of God to do that. And so uh, what's Bible class going to be like when we get to heaven? What's it going to be like to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn without a sin nature and with literally all the time in, in heaven to sit there and learn? So that's going to be fun. I look forward to that. And uh, I look forward to listening to Jesus teach and, and being sitting there with a crowd of people listening to Jesus teach and no one starts to get fidgety after an hour. You know, I mean, it's just going to be cool to sit there and, and, and hear Jesus teach. And, and especially knowing that I'm out of a job, because who wants to hear me when, when you're sitting there listening to Jesus teaching, right? So 
uh, that's that's going to be fun too. But um, beyond that, uh, I, I just you know we're not taking our our fallen bodies to heaven. We're not taking our sin nature to heaven. I have to think we're not taking our bad doctrine to heaven either, and that somehow uh, the the things that we are getting wrong here and now are going to be remedied in pretty short order when we get there. But the Jews, at least, the, I guess the Old Testament ones, um, will actually have learned all the Bible doctrine, right? Because God has already written it on their hearts. Say that again? In oh, the, you're talking about the New Covenant when yeah, he yeah. puts it on their heart mm-hmm. at the Second Advent in the Millennial Kingdom? That's a future prophetic event. That's not for Jews that are in heaven today. That's going to be for the nation of Israel in the in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay, but they will. Are we talking then about living humans? Or are we uh-huh. talking? Yeah. About, oh, okay. Yeah. I assume that uh, Daniel and Noah and all those Old Testament folks, uh, they, you know, they they probably learned some things in the meantime. You know, I don't think they're just sitting there for two thousand years waiting for us to get there and not doing anything, but. We don't just have the information on that, so we just have to speculate. Yeah, or not. All right, uh, John Weaver then over here for our next question. I can speculate with the best of them. I mean, we'll just imagine this and that, but uh, if the Bible doesn't say, then we really don't know. This morning you mentioned a verse uh, and then talked about different realms the, that we may know or understand the length and width and Yes, in Ephesians chapter 3, that we might know the length and width and height and depth. Uh Right. Uh, Living in what most people think is a three-dimensional world, uh, based on the Greek words, is there anything that indicates that one of those, whether it's depth or uh, is a spiritual parallel universe or a spiritual dimension, or you mentioned realms, something along that line maybe yeah i've I've looked at that several times and i don't know uh, the the terms are all um flexible uh, so any any of those terms can be used for a spatial dimension but they can also be used for a temporal time dimension that could be for length you know it could be a, a a space area length or it could be a, a time duration length um and so, you know, depth, you could think of as a spatial depth, or you could think of it as a spiritual depth. Uh, those terms all lend themselves to uh, a variety of, of understandings. And so uh, the fact that it is length and width and height and depth in a fourfold dimension, uh, a lot of commentaries want to have, you know, three temporal uh, or three spatial dimensions plus a time dimension. But um, God's timeless, he's outside of time, and, and much of what we're going to have is, is comparable to that in Christ. So, um, yeah, I don't know that I'm, I'm really solid, or, or I want to die on that hill tonight. Doesn't really say, but maybe fun to speculate on. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, as long as we're speculating tonight. Robert, did you have a follow-up on that? Oh, okay. Well, just straighten me out. Uh, returning to Sheol for a minute. <laughs> okay. Um, do you? Th- I've heard you say in the in the past that people who are with the Lord right now aren't really paying much attention to what's going on down here. That right. time is different, or not not at all. Do you think that the un- that the believers in Sheol before the cross 
had the same effect where they had no idea that thousands of years had gone by? Probably the case, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know how time passes in heaven. There's a strange reference in Revelation that says uh, between the blowing of whatever it is, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet or something, at some point in Revelation there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that's just, it's a bizarre expression, like who cares about half an hour when you're in heaven, right? You know, but the verse says that. It says that after this trumpet sounded, uh, or before the next trumpet sounded, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so, okay, I get that. Uh, There's also a reference to angelic measurements, and the Bible is very kind in telling us that angels use the same measurements we use, that angelic measurements and human measurements are are the same. So uh, if, it's, if it's a certain number of cubits by angelic me- measurement, well then that's also human measurement uh, as far as that goes. So, um, But no, my, my theory is, and, and I think it's to be absent from the body is to be face to face with Jesus Christ. And so um, it's, it's hard sometimes, uh, particularly for the loved ones left behind, right? We have loved ones in heaven and, and there's emotions, Right, we love them and we miss them, and we 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 want to think that they're looking down on us. We want to think, right, that that my mother is looking down on us, and she's still praying for me today, like she always has been, and uh, or or you know our our spouse or whoever it is that's in heaven right now, and and while that is a comforting thought, um, I I struggle because. By com- because the Bible presents it as a comparison, particularly in the new heavens and new earth where the former things aren't remembered. And if that's an analogy, if that's analogous, you know, when I'm face to face with Jesus Christ, why do I want to look at this place? This place is dark, this place is fallen, this place is temporal, and I am face to face with Jesus Christ in eternal glory. And so the, uh, to me, the idea of looking down and paying attention... Again, when you go back to uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 15, it's only the rich man that has regrets about what he left behind and about his brothers and, oh, go go warn my brothers and they're a bunch of losers and they need to hear the gospel. Um, Lazarus has not, not one word does he say about anything here on this earth. It's the unbeliever that has all the regrets and all the the hindsight and all the the what ifs. So anyway, I'm probably wrong, we'll find out when we get there, but uh, just in my mind, um, yeah. I get in trouble on two things, that's one thing and then pets is the other thing. That, you know, if, if they're, okay, maybe there are dogs in heaven, but that doesn't mean it's your dog that's in heaven, right? You know, um, may not be Fifi there, okay? Uh, did if, unless, unless dog Jesus died on the dog cross for doggy sins, then, um, you know, and so, and, and for the longest time, I didn't think there were any animals in heaven until uh, Glenn Carnegie pointed out that in Revelation 7 or 19, that the heavens were open and the armies of heaven came down riding white horses. And so he said, see, there's at least there's white horses in heaven. <laughs> All right, well, I guess so. But... Anyway, as far as that goes. So those are the two things that get me in trouble. Pets and, uh, and uh, people in heaven thinking about us. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's go three rows behind you then. And we'll give the cleanup. This is the cleanup hitter right here. And that's uh, it's always a big pressure when you uh, have the grand finale to question and answer night. <laughs> 
this is on you. Okay. You offered on Sunday morning to tell us what the excerpts from the church fathers on selfishness and empty conceit. And you said you could pull that up and you may have it available tonight and to ask you if you forget. You're right, I did. And you I are forgot on all the spot. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe next Wednesday? No, we can pull it up. Yeah. There, um, and we can start by that. Let's just, uh, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 3, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And I'll just walk you through the process. So if you have the software and you like doing this kind of stuff, um, you pull up your uh, your Bible. And I, I tend to put uh, English and Greek side by side, or Hebrew side by side. And, uh, and that's what happens when you select that. Show multiple resources and uh, select which resources you want to show there. Um, so do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So click on, right-click on your word selfishness there. And then uh, select your lemma, Erethea, and do a word study. So there's word study on Erethea. And this uh, is a very common tool, and I use this a lot, and a lot of folks like this. It's nice and colorful. shows you selfish ambition, disputes, uh, selfishness, selfishly ambitious. These are the ways that uh, the New American Standard translates this term. If you have a different preferred Bible, uh, New King James or something else, you can come in here under settings and put whatever English Bible you want in there and it'll, it'll redraw your wheel for you with the terms that that, that Greek word is, uh, is rendered by in, uh, in that Bible. Alright, so as far as, uh, looks like there's no Septuagint uses, uh, there's the sense of it. When you get down to the very bottom here, this is where you have your various textual searches, including the New Testament, seven results and seven verses, the Apostolic Fathers, only once, one result in one verse, and the Greek classics, two results in uh, in two verses. So uh, if you want to pull up the Greek classics, you can click on that, and it'll run the search. At some point, hello? There we go. Aristotle. How about that? And so uh, Aristotle has the two uses and they're linked there. If you want to pull up your Aristotle, you can. Also, you can open it up in the in the, the Greek of Aristotle and then also open up in that parallel window an English translation if you have uh, English translation in your library. Apostolic Fathers, then it is Ignatius to the Philadelphians. Chapter 8 and verse 2. And so this is the use here. And we can scoot up just a little bit. All right. Egomen un ta idion epoyun. Anyway, so you got the uh, Greek text on the left and English translation on the right. And uh, I was doing my part. Therefore, as a man set on unity, but God does not dwell where there is division and anger. The Lord, however, forgives all who repent, if in repenting they return to the unity of God and the counsel of the bishop. I believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, who will free you from every bond. Moreover, I urge you to do nothing in a spirit of contentiousness. That's our term, that's our Erethea, that's right there. So moreover, I urge you to do nothing in a spirit of contentiousness, but in accordance with the teaching of Christ. 
For I heard some people say, if I do not find it in the archives, I do not believe it in the gospel. And, and when I said to them, it is written, they answered me, that is precisely the question. But for me, the archives are Jesus Christ. The inviolable archives are his cross and his death and resurrection and the faith which comes through him. By these things I want through your prayers to be justified. So anyway, that was Ignatius. Ignatius to the Philadelphians. And he used the Aretheia term there. The other one that we had was empty conceit. Kenodoxia, we'll do the same thing. Bring up Kenodoxia, go down to our uh, textual uh, searches. This one has a whole lot more, including three uses in the Septuagint, uh, five uses in the Apostolic Fathers, four in the Pseudepigrapha, uh, three in Philo, and 19 in the Greek classic. So that's quite a few more. Uh, so here we have it in the Church Fathers. Kenodoxia remembers empty deceit. You have it in First Clement, uh, twice by Ignatius, uh, Ignatius to the Magnesians, Ignatius to the Philadelphians. Uh, and then the Shepherd of Hermes has, uh, has two uses there. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and bring that side by side. Here we go. So, First Clement 35.5, How shall this be, dear friends, if our mind is fixed on God through faith, if we seek out those things which are well-pleasing and acceptable to Him? If we accomplish those things which are in harmony with his faultless will and follow the way of truth, casting off from ourselves all unrighteousness and lawlessness, covetous strife, that's our term, uh, malice and deceit, gossip and slander, hatred of God, pride and arrogance, vanity and inhospitality. So that was Clement. I like Ignatius to the Magnesians. Here's chapter 11. <laughs> I write these things, my dear friends, not because I have learned that any of you are actually like that, but as one who is less than you, I want to forewarn you not to get snagged on the hooks of worthless opinions, but instead to be fully convinced about the birth and the suffering and the resurrection which took place during the time of the govern governorship of Pontius Pilate. Anyway, that's Kenodoxius there. Philadelphians. Rendered out of vanity. Shepherd of Hermes. Why, sir, I said, are there still other evil practices? Indeed, there are many, he said, over which the servant of God must exercise self-control. And he starts to list them all, including our kenodoxia. Others living entirely among the heathen and being corrupted by the worthless opinions of the heathen. This is kind of a fun statement in here too. Um, what happens when you're trying to live uh, a good Christian walk but you're living in, uh, surrounded by a bunch of pagans? <laughs> and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, so he talks about this. Lived uh, with and according to the standards of pagans, this lifestyle was more pleasant to them. Yet they did not fall away from God, but continued in the faith, though 
they did not do the works of faith. Many of them therefore repented and their home was within the tower, but others, living entirely upon, uh, among the heathen, being corrupted by the worthless opinions of the heathen, fell away from God and behaved like the heathen. Then it goes on to describe their sins, and that's where we have our Canodoxias right there. So, anyway, I think it's rendered double-minded at that point, as opposed to empty, empty arrogance. But, all right, so you're right, I did promise that on Sunday, and uh, thank you for reminding me and holding me to my promise. All right. So we are in Philippians 2, and we are working our way to have this attitude in yourselves. And the expression for attitude is the phreneo thinking that we've had again and again already, uh, and a total of ten times throughout the book. And so uh, we have it again. We do, uh, I I introduced this on Sunday morning to just kind of... demonstrate that this is not really Paul's typical writing style, at least I haven't found this in other places. Um, He does like to have a main verb, and then when he has a main verb, he will often follow that main verb uh, after the main verb with some other participles and so forth. Here though, the participles are all leading the way up front. It's almost like he's he's building up to to the climax, building up to the crescendo. And have this attitude in yourselves really is a uh, a crescendo. We get past this where we outline the chapter, and then we get to this. All right. So have this attitude. And point one, have this attitude is the climax imperative. And and there's some things that lead up to that, including two present participles regarding from verse 3 and looking out for in verse 4. And so we're kind of taking this, uh, outlining this sentence and taking everything almost in reverse order just so that we can see what leads up to it. So having have this attitude in yourselves, that's the main imperative right there. But when you back up, you see the material from verse 3 and the material from verse 4 is written in such a way that it's it's in passing. It's describing the contemporaneous activity. So doing nothing or thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Thinking nothing from selfishness and thinking nothing from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And that's still not even the complete sentence. Because that's just simply a participle describing the activity that goes with the main verb. So um, we might say, you know, listening intently to your pastor and fighting hard to stay awake and sitting up straight with good posture and sitting very still so as not to distract the people around you and quietly listening So, I mean, how long can we keep doing this? We can just keep adding and adding and adding. And those are the the ing participles, right? Or gerunds, whatever you want to call them. And so we can just keep going and going and going and going. And then eventually, you know, you say, all right, I get it. What what are you saying? Come, Come to your main point here. And that's what Paul's doing here. So... 
Um, the idea of regarding one another is more important than yourself. That is, it's a present participle that goes with the imperative. And if you ever stop doing that present participle, give up on the imperative. You cannot obey the imperative. These are describing the attendant circumstances. All right. So hold your finger there, and then let's look over the Great Commission, and I'll show you another easy way to illustrate this. Matthew 28, with the Great Commission, verses uh, 18 through 20. We'll make sure we're solid on this too, as long as we're at it. Okay. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority, are you with me? Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As you go therefore, or go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Now I uh, realize that go gets a lot of preaching. <laughs> right? Go is easy to preach, but it's wrong to make that the emphasis. It is not an imperative, and it's not even a present participle. It's an aorist participle. It describes antecedent activity. So as you go, or having gone, or wherever you go, you know, Jesus is uh, giving his farewell message here, and he's fixing to go to heaven. And these apostles are all fixing to go everywhere. They're going to get scattered and go all over the world. And so as you go, or having gone, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. And that's the prime imperative. That's the only imperative of this text. But then we have two present active participles. Remember, go is an aorist participle, but these next two are present participles. And that's the difference. The present participle describes activity that's simultaneous. Activity that defines the main verb. That's simultaneous with the main verb. So when it says, make disciples of all nations, it then tells you how to make disciples. It doesn't say, buy a a self-help book at the Christian bookstore. That's not how you make a disciple. Making disciples is defined by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Those two ings, baptizing and teaching. Those two participles, baptizing them, teaching them. And if you ever stop baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you ever stop teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, then you've stopped making disciples. Because discipleship is defined by those two participles. By the way, teaching them is not teaching them everything from Genesis to Revelation. (laughs) It's not teaching them everything exhaustively that can be taught from the Bible. There There is a syllabus for discipleship, and it's specifically delineated here as to observe all that I commanded you. And in the context of all that I commanded you, what was that? Was that every imperative Jesus ever uttered in the Gospels? Or are we talking about the upper room discourse in which he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so we have the, the, the core curriculum, the syllabus for discipleship is John 13 through 17. It is the upper room discourse doctrine 
that he equipped his disciples with on the night in which he was betrayed. That's the core of discipleship doctrine. So baptizing them means uh, we identify them in the church age as as, uh, church age believers, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them the upper room discourse content. Anyway, if you want more on that, it's sitting on the website under the Great Commission heading related to that. That is, but that's an example of a primary imperative, just one, make disciples, with two present participles that tell you how to do it. That give you the simultaneous activity, the definition of how to make disciples. Same thing now in Philippians chapter 2. The only difference is in Philippians 2 the participles are listed first as introductions to the to the imperative. So other than the word order, the concept is the same. So um, regarding one another as more important than yourselves and looking out for the interests of others, think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. If you're not fulfilling those two participles, you're not going to fulfill the think this way imperative from verse 5. That's the, that's the impact here on the, the grammar, the syntax of these verses. So, taking it backwards, taking it one step at a time, working our way backwards. Have this attitude as the climax imperative following two present participles. The participle for regarding and the participle for looking out for. We have to back up uh, even further because regarding one another... That regarding one another participle. Can't we just start there? Well, we can, but that regarding one another participle is the climax participle following two negative thought processes. So stop thinking selfishness. Stop thinking empty conceit. Those then become prerequisites for regarding one another as more important than yourself. Uh, uh, Thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. They precede the uh, regarding one another. Same thing with uh, the humility of mind. That's uh, a prerequisite. It's a requirement. So this is where we were on Sunday. We worked our way backwards and we started at the top and we started to, to knock out those issues. So thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And so we had selfishness classes on Sunday uh, showing what selfishness is and saying don't do that. All right. And selfishness, by the way, is very easy. You don't need a whole block of instruction on how to be selfish. It comes very naturally to your fallen sin nature. All of us have built in within us a no good thing that is very uh, much attuned to selfishness. And so thinking nothing from selfishness If some idea pops into your head and it's a selfish idea, get rid of it. That selfish idea is going to poison the rest of your thought process after that and uh, will have a negative impact on your capacity to, uh, to obey this passage. Likewise, the empty conceit, vainglory, vainglory. Empty conceit, that's bragging about yourself and there's really nothing there to brag about. It's, it's just empty. It's kenos. It's like vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And uh, you're so proud of something centered on you 
And uh, there's really nothing that's worth boasting in there because it's scripture, scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, problem is though, obviously, um, is that we tend to boast anyway, even though there's nothing there to boast in. We think there is. And as empty as it is, we place value in it. We think it's worthwhile because it does something for us. It stokes our ego or it boosts our self-esteem or whatever else it does. We just feel better about ourselves because we're boasting in a way that the, the guy in the, next to us can't boast in. And uh, so somehow it convinces us that, that we're better. And uh, both of these things, selfishness and empty conceit, uh, you have to stop thinking from those perspectives. But with humility of mind, humility of mind, tape, fra, tape na frasune, tape na frasune. This is our term for humility. And again, we looked at this, and it's a great uh, word study. It's a recognition. I mean, it comes down to really a fundamental, a fundamental thing. Um, it is the antithesis of of our fallen nature. It is the antithesis of Satan's program which is all about self-promotion and self-exaltation. But Jesus Christ humbled himself, we should humble ourselves. That humility is what God is well pleased by. And he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we should understand this, that humble attitudes will then shape the appropriate application. So having this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, see, some folks think that that there is the verse on humility. That I need to have the thinking Christ had. Well, what thinking was that? It was a humble thinking. No, wait a minute, back up a step. Humble thinking is a prerequisite to have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ had the thinking he had because he was humble. Christ had the thinking he had because he was uh, not approaching it from selfishness or empty boasting. So all of those prerequisites that are our prerequisites, they were his prerequisites too. He would not have thought the way he thought had he not been humble. Right? So how did he think? Again, he, um, although he existed in the form of God and not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That was his thinking. His thinking was to lay aside anything he might claim of his own and serve us. And serve us. See, and that's what he did. And that's what we're supposed to do. Lay aside whatever claim we think we have and uh, start serving one another. That's what we're called to do. So we have selfishness, empty conceit, humility of mind. Now we finally get to our term for regard. Regarding one another as superior. Regarding one another as superior. This is a conscious effort. This is a deliberate choice that we make in how do we regard. And this becomes then our good pleasure because this is what God did. God, Jesus Christ, regarded you as more important than himself. That's why he took your sins on the cross. My sins on the cross. He had you personally in mind as he uh, accomplished the wrath of God, as he accepted the wrath of God on our behalf. And so to regard, regarding one another as superior, the other more important than 
yourself is what we see here. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now he's talking to a large audience. He's talking to the, the, the overall flock of, of, of uh, Philippi, right? Philippian Bible Church. And he's talking to all of them. And each one of them gets to apply this. And that makes it a win-win. It's a reciprocal, mutual reciprocal thing. And we, we can apply it in a local church, we can apply it in a marriage, we can apply it in any interpersonal relationship where you think it will have a value. It will have a value, all right, as a win-win situation where you consider that your wife's needs are more important than your needs. And your wife considers that your needs are more important than her needs. And so it's a win-win. It goes both directions simultaneously. And so you give preference to one another in honor. As uh, we can show you some of these other passages where these truths are reflected, where they are communicated. But the idea of regarding, another one of our thinking verbs, but this is a verb whereby you choose to value something. You choose how you esteem something. It's the verb hegeamai. Hegeamai. Fascinating study. Particularly because it really has two almost opposite definitions, not opposite, but two widely different usages. One that's a thinking term and one that's a leading a leadership term. But uh, the verb for regarding here is the verb hegeomai. H-E-G-E-O-M-A-I. Hegeomai. 2233 is the strongest number. There are 28 uses, most of which are the thinking uses, uh, a small uh, minority of which are the uses whereby they, uh, it, it functions as a noun and it's translated as a leader. Someone who leads, okay, and uh, and I guess that's useful. If uh, you have a leader that can also think, uh, you want to, you know, I guess you want you want both. Both verbs would be useful. Um, but now, now here we go. So, what kind of thinking is this? Is this the? Uh, it's not logizomai. It's not calculating or or uh, crediting or imputing. It's not uh, docheo, to seem or to imagine. Um, it's not froneo, which is the main thinking verb we've had all throughout this book. Uh, of all the different expressions for thinking, the idea of, of, of either high regard or low regard or esteem or lack thereof, this has to do with value judgments. This is the kind of thinking whereby you examine an object and you esteem it or you don't. You look at an object and you have um, an estimation, right? Where you estimate, esteem the value of something. Okay? Now this is, this is crazy, right? We get this because this is where we are. And then typically uh, if you're married... This is um, this is like Mars and Venus, okay? Because Sharon can look at the same thing I'm looking at, and whereas I esteem it very highly, I look at this and I go, "Wow, can you believe? Look at that! That is, I can't." I mean, I'm just I'm flabbergasted that this 
this thing I'm drooling over, it's, it's only $8,000. I mean, wow. And of course, my wife, she's looking at this thing and she can't believe it either. <laughs> but for different reasons, in a different way, right? Because mostly she's looking at me and she can't believe that I believe that it's worth that kind of money, right? And then it goes the other direction too. There are things, and, and she's been, she's had her eye on it for a while, and she's been pricing it. And, and what it comes down to with something that you esteem, that, that means you're putting a, a value judgment on it. You're assigning a, a, a worth equivalency. And so, I mean, let's face it, there are some things that you just can't put a price on it. <laughs> it's worth, it's worth any price. And it's a bargain at any price. I mean, you just, wow. And so she can't believe that she's looking at this thing. And, uh, and, and to, because to her, she has esteemed it very highly. And, and, and in her esteem, that outweighs any, any dollar value, right? And I'm looking at it and saying, what? what is it? I don't even know what it is. So you'll have to explain to me what it is and, and, and why we need it because I don't know what it does or, or where, where to put it. So you, you, we get the difference? Okay, so now, here's the, here's the beautiful thing though. Because we are told to esteem one another very highly in love. So what happens if, if I look at something and objectively speaking... It's completely worthless. But I'm told to honor it highly. Okay? See, and this is the trap. Satan would love to throw us into this trap. Humanity wants to put one another on a relative scale and say, well, what have you done for me lately? Right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But, in, you know, I'm not, feeling, I'm not feeling the back scratching right now, so it just seems to me like... <sighs> you know, I would do it and everything, but I just don't think you're worth it at this point. You know? That's religion. That's humanity. That's carnality. That's everything this dark world wants to promote. The, this dark world would look at another person and throw a value judgment out there, and more often than not, you're not worth it. Sorry. I, I come first. I gotta look out for number one. All right. Yeah, okay, I guess maybe fine. I can serve you as long as it's not too inconvenient. And besides, I want to get something out of it anyway. So, but we're not told to do that. We are commanded to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Right? The members which seem to have less honor are actually more honorable, we're told. When we start to evaluate, uh, we start to see the inner working of all the gifts, the giftedness in the local church. We start to see how all the body of Christ comes together for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we start to recognize that our the command we have to regard one another is to regard one another. And to regard one another as more important than ourselves. So if we've got some kind of a pride thing going whereby we have a very inflated uh, ego or a very inflated um, 
estimation of ourselves. <laughs> well, all right. Inflate yourself all you want, because however much you inflate yourself, you've got to doubly inflate everybody besides you. Because the other, other person is more important than yourself. And really what you should do is deflate yourself, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Uh, consider that, you know what, I, I'm a nobody. I should be in the lake of fire. Who do I think I am? And so the, the other members of, of this church, the other members of the body of Christ, the one another beneficiaries of this right thinking, then they get to be esteemed very highly. And then it becomes a privilege. Wow. Wow. So think about, you know, somebody very important and think about if, you know, if, uh, if you were tasked with, you know, doing something on their behalf, what would you do for, uh, you know, I've never met a famous person, but let's say you meet a famous person and you have an opportunity, you know, would you, would you, uh, their car broke down, would you, would you drive them to the airport, you know, and like, Wow, are you kidding me? You know, I'd, I'd be honored. Sure, I'll drive you to the airport because, man, I get to talk to this person and get to know them, and you know, I would just count that as an honor. And uh, that's the attitude we're supposed to have for everybody in the body of Christ. That sister that I was holding a grudge against—that's the sister for whom Christ died. Um, I think I need to reevaluate my estimation. Of, uh, of that person's worth. Alright, so this is what we have here. And this is a verb, by the way, we've seen it in many applications. We've seen it in 2 Corinthians 9.5. Uh, most of these should just jump right out at you right away and you go, oh yeah, that was that passage. So I considered it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. And so this is what he regarded. He considered, he regarded, he esteemed, counted it necessary. Necessary to arrange the gift ahead of time before Paul arrives. Doesn't want the money to be uh, to be an issue, and doesn't want the the uh, personality to distract from the true giving. Look at all these times hey, get my shows up in Philippians. You know, not only does does uh, Frenetto show up ten times. Look at all these hey, get my times uh, two three two six two twenty five three seven and twice in three eight. So that's six hey, get mys in Philippians. In addition to the ten phronetos in Philippians, there's a whole lot of thinking in Philippians. So verse 3 is uh, the regard application. Regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard, he did not hegeamai, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. That's not what he regarded. Now Satan regarded that. Satan was all drooling over equality with God and, and vowing in his five I wills, I will be like the Most High God. And that was something he felt was just his for the taking. And uh, Jesus said, uh, no, that's not for the taking. 
That's not even a thing you could lay hold of, lay hold of. So he did not regard. Down to verse 25. I uh, considered or thought or regarded it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger or your apostle and minister to my need. So he wants to send Timothy, but he has to hold off until he hears how his trial goes, and then he'll send Timothy. And in the meantime, he considered, he regarded that it's necessary to send Epaphroditus. That's the Philippians 2.25 use. Twice in chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 8. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have regarded as loss for the sake of Christ. Those things I have regarded. Okay, it's not the same as logizomai. It's not the same as reckoned or imputed or, or considered. It is, it is an actual estimation, and he has changed his estimation. Taking his own seminary degree, his own academic credentials, all the things that he might otherwise point to in earthly terms, that other people would were just jealous of. Other people would love to have half the education Paul had. And yet Paul said in his Hegetamai, it's it's um scubalon, it's it's uh refuse, it's uh something that should be flushed. More than that, I consider esteem, regard all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So when we talk about surpassing and superior and better, regarding one another as more important than yourself, that's our term right here, more important, surpassing, superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You realize all that education, all that seminary degree, and all that, and he didn't know the Lord. <laughs> you know? Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk teaching theology in the, in the uh, seminary at Wittenberg, and he never read the New Testament. And so he's full of his own sin, full of his own guilt, and just hating life and hating everything. And, and uh, he had a, a mentor that came alongside and said, you know, I think... I think the New Testament might cheer you up. Have you ever read the New Testament? No, why would I do that? You know, are you out of your mind? Who, who reads that? And uh, anyway, so he did. He read it and got saved. How about that? <laughs> so imagine what happens when you read the Scriptures. So yeah, twice there in verse 8. So I regard all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and regard them but, and then there's our scatological curse word there, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That was a vulgar term for solid bodily waste. And uh, Paul just says it's all just a bunch of, Right? We don't use that kind of language in church, but Paul put it in the Bible. So there you go. And that's how he regarded it. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 You have an objectivity test anytime uh, you sit under the authority of, of a teacher, of a pastor, 
And the Thessalonians are a great example of of, uh, of this, <clears throat> of regarding Paul and his ministry, or regarding um, anybody that ministers the Word of God. First <clears throat> Thessalonians five twelve says, "We request of you, brethren." that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. That you, and, and the word for appreciate is oida, that you know them, you know them fully, know them comprehensively. Those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. There's authority there, and we live in a culture where that's being rebelled against. But they have charge over you in the Lord because They've been, uh, the sheep have been allotted to their charge. And they admonish you or give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because clearly they deserve it. Oh, wait, I might have misread that. That's not what it says in verse 13. What does it say? Because of their work. Because of their work. Not because they deserve it. Esteem them anyway. Esteem them anyway. See, this, by the way, this is the secret too for, for wives being in subjection to your own husbands. It's as unto the Lord. It's not because they deserve it. It's not because you just can't help yourself. Okay? So esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. See, who benefits when you uh, support your pastor biblically? And that's the, the use of it there. Second Thessalonians 3.15. So you got a brother under discipline. Uh, the busybody that's not working. And he was told to work. And since uh, he won't obey that, well now he's told, okay, if you don't work, you don't eat. And um, stop being a busybody. Work in a quiet fashion. Eat their own bread. Do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not hegeamai him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You can't regard him as an enemy. He's not an enemy. All right? He's just a knucklehead and he needs to repent and grow up and, and get right in the plan of God. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he hegeamide he considered me faithful putting me into service. Now, was he faithful? No. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. He was a violent aggressor. But God considered him faithful. And obviously, in God's foreknowledge and foresight, he could see some future faithfulness. But all that aside, he still considered him faithful. And uh, that has regarded him as faithful and put him into service. And that's curious to me. All right. So uh, it's 1 Timothy 1.12, 1 Timothy 6.1. 1 
more reckoning, more regarding. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And they most likely they're not worthy of all honor. But regard them as if they were. Regard them as if they were Jesus Christ Himself. And uh, when you're working as under the Lord, just don't forget who you're working for. When you're working as under the Lord, then you're not... uh, what are you going to do, go on a smoke break and start backbiting behind his back and talking to fellow co-workers about what a jerk your boss is? Wait a minute. Just regard that your boss is Jesus Christ. Your boss is worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And then if you have a believer as a master, oh wow, that's icing on the cake. Okay? Now, you may not have a believer as a boss or a slave master or what have you, but man, if you do, that's even better. That's the best of both worlds. And don't be disrespectful to them or don't think that you can cut corners and be a lazy slug and he'll let you slide because you go to the same church. All right, no, all the more. Serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved so teach and preach these principles. So yeah, your your boss has enough jerks. Don't don't add to the to the mix. Be a blessing by association as well. And uh, apply that. Hebrews ten twenty nine. Everybody knows Hebrews ten. Twenty nine. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded, this is our verb, hegeamai, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Was the blood of Christ unclean? (laughs) The blood of Christ purchased my redemption. The blood of Christ was spotless. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And yet he shed his blood that I might have eternal life. I'm going to regard that as unclean. How dare I? I'm going to trample underfoot. You see, when you when you set aside the truth, when uh, when you just decide to blow off the word of God and live a life of flagrant carnality, what are you doing? You're putting Christ to open shame. You're saying, eh, the cross, who cares? Man, insulting the spirit of grace. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How much severe punishment do you think? Oh, about in- infinity. <laughs> okay. Infinitely sev- more severe. Well, how, how does the value of Christ's blood compare to the blood of bulls, rams, and goats? How do I compare the finished work of Jesus Christ to the shadow animal ritual of the Old Testament? And violating the shadow animal ritual of the Old Testament was worthy of physical death. What do I think I'm worthy of when I, uh, when I insult the Spirit of grace and I regard His sacrifice as unclean? That's, that's a ferocious warning right there. Uh, Hebrews 11.11 11.
by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. Now, I love all this. This is all marvelous. This Hall of Fame of Faith. And this came up with uh, a fellow a couple weeks ago when the, uh, all the arguments and debates were happening about the nature of faith, right? And I prefer to stick with the Bible's definition of faith and not some philosopher's definition of faith. But one of the things we were discussing is, is faith rational? And I believe faith is very rational. That faith is, is uh, uh, a, a, a activity that we undertake on a rational basis, having, having estimated the faithfulness of the one who promised. God has promised, and God is infinitely faithful. And so I trust in what he said, because uh, not because I'm just believing in nothing. It's not a blind faith. <coughs> All right, so um, looking at Abraham here, and uh, he sacrificed his son, and he did so um, considering, he did so logizamaying. And likewise, Sarah. She, she believes, and she receives the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. She'd already gone through the change of life. And yet, um, here it comes, you know. And uh, she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him. She reckoned him. She esteemed him faithful who had promised. And since God's the one that promised... That's what she considered. I'm six minutes over time. Where, the, where did this time go? Goodness gracious. All right. Well then, uh, we'll pick up on this uh, Sunday because this, uh, this is too important. Um, first hour, Sunday morning, we'll pick up on this. We do have another missionary visit this coming Sunday. It says, tis the season for uh, missionaries. Pakistan last week and Nicaragua coming up here with uh, uh, Mario Garcia this coming Sunday. So that's going to be fun. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Father, open our eyes. Show us what we need to do to regard, to regard you, to regard your son, to regard one another, to regard your word. We want to have the right estimations of everything we're looking at, which means you want to have the biblical estimations of everything we're looking at. So Father, uh, teach us how to have this kind of estimating eye that uh, is shaped by the Word of God in all things. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.